Welcome, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neifer, your host, and today we're going to have a conversation with Eric O'Brien from Fallline Capital. And Eric is based in, well, I'm going to let Eric tell the audience uh, where you're based and how the weather is today. All right, Paul, thanks for having me. Uh, so, yeah, I am in Menlo Park, California, in my home office today. Our, our headquarters is in San Mateo, just up the road. We're about a half an hour south of San Francisco. And the uh, weather today is uh, overcast, probably about 55 degrees, um, which is a vast improvement from uh, a lot of the weather we've been having here in California this winter. Yeah, no, you guys have definitely been wet. Uh, I was telling you offline that my wife and I, uh, we went up to this, uh, it's called Mount Princeton Hot Springs, and it's it's right in the middle of the, what they call the collegiate collegiate peak wilderness and you got mount princeton you got mount yale you got mount harvard you got mount oxford and a couple other mountains they're all in that fourteen thousand plus range and a really nice hot springs we just did a spur of the moment and coming and going up no weather at all coming back we ran into a little bit of snow down by colorado springs so it wasn't too bad i've never heard of that area and uh now i'm intrigued i'm gonna have to check that yeah. out yeah, it is. Uh, it's pretty nice. It's definitely you. You, you have a plane up there that's about nine thousand feet, and it's probably fifty miles wide by about thirty, forty miles deep. And then you are surrounded by by the mountains there. Everywhere you look, you see mountains. So it's pretty nice. So can't, can't complain. But uh, well, enough about uh, Colorado. Nobody's listening to this podcast to have me talk about uh, Colorado mountains. But uh, as we start off. Uh, almost every podcast, we'd like to go through your background. So let's just start off uh, where you grew up, went to school and all that good stuff. Sure. So I grew up not too far from here in San Francisco, California. So I'm, I'm a, I guess, somewhat rare San Francisco native who stuck around in, in the area over over his career. So I um, went to high school at a public high school in San Francisco called Lowell High and then uh, graduated from there and flew across uh Across the country to Harvard for my undergrad um, and studied economics there. That's also where I met my current business partner in Fall Line, Clay Mitchell. He and I were members of our college ski team there. Um, when I graduated from Harvard in '94, I uh, decided to pursue a, a career in finance, uh, starting at Morgan Stanley in uh, in New York City, spent a year there in their investment banking analyst program, and then decided that that was probably about enough of the East Coast for me. And <laughs> I had a strong desire to get back out West and, and uh, managed to transfer to the San Francisco office of uh, Morgan Stanley. So that brought me back home with my eventual wife, uh, Suzanne, who was also an analyst at Morgan Stanley. So we met during my my training days there. And, and um, after a year of dating, I convinced her to move out west with me. And uh, and so we we moved back to San Francisco, spent another year at Morgan Stanley, and then had developed an understanding of the venture capital business because they were the kinds of clients that we were covering when I was an investment banker. And um, I, I went looking for uh, an opportunity in venture and found one uh, being the protege of one of the founders of a firm called Interwest Partners in um in the sort of storied sand hill road um 
of, of uh, Silicon Valley and uh, spent two years there investing in uh, early stage technology companies and healthcare companies, um, and then decided to go back to business school at Stanford um, and uh, graduated from there in 2000. And then I uh, got drawn back into the venture business. So I um, joined a firm called Lightspeed Venture Partners in 2000. And then I spent the next 12 years of my career there investing in early stage technology companies across a variety of industries from enterprise software to optical networking. Um, and then in the 2005, six timeframe, raised my hand to start looking at opportunities in China. We were, this is when we were really starting to see the technology and venture landscape begin to take off in, in China. So I volunteered to explore that market for Lightspeed and started traveling back and forth. Um, actually moved my family over there for about six months in the 2006 timeframe where we set up an office in uh, Shanghai and hired a team. And that team has now become uh, Lightspeed China, an independent venture firm affiliated with uh, Lightspeed. And, um, started uh, coming back to the US after that. And and um, that's that's kind of when the fall line story starts um, because I started looking at ag tech deals with Clay uh, at that point. So I'll pause there. And, and, yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's a good pause because uh, you have probably a lot of people listening to this. Hey, this is a ag uh, podcast and this doesn't sound like too much ag yet. So yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, okay, so so you venture capital, Lightspeed, which I've actually heard of. I, I think I've read a couple articles on it. So about so this is when you met up with Clay and we're looking at starting Fallline Capital, which is where you're at now. About what time period was that? Yeah, so we hatched the idea for the firm in the 2011 timeframe after he and I had had looked at some interesting ag tech related deals that were coming to Silicon Valley looking for capital. Clay was always my go-to uh, diligence resource. Um, you know, he's a fifth generation farmer from Iowa, studied biomedical engineering undergrad, then got his master's in agronomy from Cornell. Um, and he always knew he was going to be a farmer. He And, and after undergrad um, and grad school really set about becoming one of the most technologically advanced farmers in the world, um, grain farming, corn and soybeans in, in, in Iowa, but bringing all kinds of new technologies in to sort of optimize productivity and enhance soil sustainability. So in 2011, um, I began to hear about investor interest in agriculture generally. Um, some in ag tech, but actually more specifically in farmland. And, and some of the investors that Lightspeed had, had indicated to me um, in, in sort of casual conversation that they were spending a lot of time trying to understand the farmland market as a place where they wanted to expand their real assets portfolio. And that's kind of when the light bulb went off uh, for me and Clay that, okay, there's, there's institutional investor interest in this space, but this space of farmland is, you know, at the time it was probably well less than 1% owned by any institutions and, and was a very, very fragmented space. And as, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, it is a very nuanced asset. You know, no, no farm is identical to another farm and, and, and each one has, you know, specific physical properties to it and, and, um, you know, weather associated with it and, and a local economy associated with it that makes the value of that farm, you know, different and 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 requires different management, and and that is something that that institutional investors have a hard time dealing with, and they rely on 
managers uh, of capital who understand the domain to to sort of take the lead for them. And and that's that's when we decided that there was an opportunity for the two of us to team up and, and do something different in this space. And so we started that in 2011 and then uh, raised our first fund over the course of 2012. And at this time, uh, so was Clay farming full time or was he doing something else and doing the farming or or how did how did that how did you guys hook up together at that point in time? Yeah, Clay was farming full time, um, you know, from for that that prior decade or so. And, you know, as a grain farmer in in Iowa who had who had attracted quite a bit of attention from from the farm press. I mean, he was he was showing up in all kinds of different um, farm magazines and even mainstream media, you know, Financial Times and Time Magazine and uh, Wired Magazine. Um, so he he was full time farming, um, but he had his winters off as a, as a grain farmer. And, and yep. you know he, he and I, being uh, avid skiers, we would meet up in in the wintertime uh, and go on ski trips on occasion. And you know that's kind of when when we were sort of coming up with with ideas and and brainstorming around what we might do together. And um, and so for him, um, when we started raising the fund in earnest in 2012 um he was still running his home farm in iowa um and then spending all of his spare time you know with me on the developing the the plan the business plan and then and then um you know working with me to go around and, and try to fundraise um for it and then as as we got things up and running um he you know really had over that period of time also built up a team on his farm um, of, of individuals that he kind of had worked with for a number of years and trusted and and really he kind of put himself in a position where he could elevate that team to really do the core of the work with his sort of remote supervision okay and so you you raised the first fund in uh 2012 and then started buying up some farmland and as a matter of fact i think about that time period is probably when I met you and Clay for the first time, wasn't it? Right about uh, 2012, 2013, somewhere in there? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I remember um, driving up to your offices in Tri-Cities and, and Clay, I think I think you and Clay had had a number of conversations previously just based on your background as, you know, the, 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 the farmland accountant. Um, and, and so by reputation, you know, I had certainly heard of you and we came by to say hello because we had begun looking at... Um, properties and and farmland opportunities in and around the tri-cities area yeah yeah no i i remember that uh, it's it's as you get older time just flies quicker so yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the first fund or typically when you're dealing with a fund like that there's sort of a time horizon associated with these funds and i think your first fund definitely had a little bit of a time horizon do i have that accurate yeah, so the the typical format for a private equity fund or a venture fund um, or even a, a commercial real estate fund for that matter has a um, you know it's a it's a called a blind pool vehicle. So we raise capital, we raise capital commitments from institutional investors. And so they've made a commitment. And in that case, it was a hundred and twenty five million dollar commitment. That was the size of the fund. And um, the uh, objective is that we will put that money to work over roughly a three-year time frame, and then we must distribute uh, all of the investments and and um, you know liquid investments. So selling the farms or um, taking them public in a public REIT format or something like that. Liquidity comes in ten years, um, with the ability 
at our discretion to extend by a year or two, um, and then potentially in agreement with those LPs extending further if 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 required. So that that is the typical structure of a private equity vehicle. And when we raised our first fund, we didn't you know we were we were trying to convince people that investing in farmland number one made sense, and then number two that that we were a team that that they should back, even though we hadn't actually done this before specifically. Um, and so when you're when you're kind of introducing that level of risk to a new investor, yep. one of the things we decided was not to mess with the structure and and make that anything other than pretty plain vanilla. So that's that was the the format for the first fund. And I think as time evolved on that fund, uh, we'll talk about the evergreen a little bit later on. But I think also, didn't you then start seeing some opportunities in ag tech, so to speak? Yeah. So you know, because of my background in venture capital and Clay's understanding of ag technology at all the way down to kind of the engineering level of a lot of different types of products, everything from software to machinery and and, and biotech, um, we convinced our investors that while the focus of the fund was 95% on farmland and and acquiring farmland that we felt could could really improve with our management so both because of capital improvements we could make but really a lot of operating improvements to how the farm would be managed one of the big levers that we intended to pull to to add that value was from new technologies and so we convinced investors that because we understood venture capital and because we understood ag technology and because we were building this platform of land, it would be synergistic with that strategy if we had a little bit of capital available to invest in some ag tech startups that we thought could be strategic to how we were managing farms. And, and so we we managed to convince them to give us a flyer on, on 5% of that fund and we made five investments in that vehicle, um, in uh, in some startups, including Granular, which was a an ERP software company for farmers that, that got acquired for three hundred million dollars by Corteva, and we invested in Planet Labs, micro satellite company that went public last year. Uh, we were one of their first users for for agriculture of that satellite imagery, uh, and then a company called Sound Ag that that many people may have heard of. Now it's um, you know doing quite a bit of revenue in in. Um, in fertilizer efficiency products and plant growth regulator hormones. Um, so yeah, that was the start of the, the ag tech practice. Okay. And then a few years after you had the first fund, then I think you then decided to do what's called an evergreen fund. And why don't you describe for the listeners out there what an evergreen fund is? Yeah. So an evergreen fund is a vehicle, unlike this sort of closed end fund I described of having a 10 year limit, an evergreen fund technically has no back-end limit to it. it. It can theoretically go forever, provided that your investors you know, uh, have an interest in, in keeping it alive that long. And, and the way that it works is you, you raise an initial, um, we call it series of capital. So in, in that particular case, in 2016, we raised $200 million. And um, the objective would be to put those $200 million to work over the course of a three or four year period and then at the time when either four years arrives or the 200 million is invested, um, then we basically go back to our investors and get a new commitment of capital. And that new commitment is to be used for new investments 
adding on to the same pool that we had previously raised. So you're 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 just continuing to build on an existing portfolio. And the benefit of that in the farmland space is, you know, as we know, farmland is a long dated asset. It is the kind of thing that in a perfect world, when you buy a a terrific farm, you know, you want to manage that land forever um, yep. and you want to improve it forever. And and the evergreen vehicle theoretically allows you um, to you know manage for the long, long term. And so um, that has been that Evergreen Fund. You've had that for what six years now, so somewhere in there, five, six, seven years. Yeah, going on, going on seven years now. Okay, and I think as time has gone by, I, I think didn't you find out that some investors really wanted to be strictly in farmland, and some wanted to be in ag tech, and and haven't you re revised your structure a little bit in that in, in that space? Yeah, yeah, that that's um, yeah. It's so an interesting sort of evolution, and and it's you know th this is the the benefit of a, of, a, of an evergreen vehicle is it theoretically goes for um, you know forever, um, but it is hard to look into your crystal ball and anticipate um, everything in advance when you're putting a, a structure like that together, and and what what we didn't anticipate um, in when we originally put that fund together was what was going to happen in the ag tech and food tech venture market and, and just the growth that we would see there. So when we initially set out to raise, when we set out and raised and set up that evergreen fund, we set it up to be 90% uh, farmland and, and then roughly 10% ag tech. Again, the, the thought being in 2016, we were we were still really at the early edge of, of this sort of emergence of ag tech and food tech as a category. And and we um, you know really believe that that we wanted to have the ability to just cherry pick interesting deals there, but really the focus was going to be on farmland. And what we what we realized was um, that very quickly over the course of 2016 through 2019 period, um, the attention to ag tech and the interest from entrepreneurs to start companies in the space just just took off. I mean, just a huge acceleration of capital moving into the space. And because we were one of the early players there, we we had developed a, a nice uh, brand name and entrepreneurs knew about us and had heard good things about us from our other portfolio companies and 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 people in the in the industry. And so we were just seeing a ton of really interesting deals. And so we very quickly hit our 10% cap. And and we went back to our LPs and said, look, you know, we we've hit the cap um on ag tech but we're we're seeing just really really compelling deals so we can either sit on our hands and and let them just kind of cruise on by and not invest or we can increase the allocation and and our lps having seen the quality of the companies we were investing in opted to give us an increase in in allocation so we increased it all the way up to 30 percent um but then what happened was we we so we we put 30% of the fund into ag tech. And meanwhile, we're still making really um, great farmland investments and that's all going exactly as planned. Um, but the values of these ag tech companies just continue to grow uh, and they and, and technology when it works grows a lot faster than the value of, of farmland. You know, it's it's a it's a risk return trade off. Yeah. And, yeah. and so we we found ourselves in a situation where you know, we were 50% by value farmland and about 50% by value ag tech. And when you go and try to raise capital for a vehicle that is half the risk profile of steady, stable farmland, high quality, you know, last forever, and 50% super risky technology, high growth, you know, high risk reward, 
it it makes it really difficult for institutional investors um, to to put you in a bucket. And and most institutional investors like to allocate their portfolio into very discrete buckets: real yeah. assets as one, venture assets as another. And and so we were we were getting kind of um, you know head scratching looks from from new prospective investors who said, "Hang on a second, fifty um, percent real estate farmland, fifty percent venture does not compute. We really love what you're doing." Um, but hey, I'm a real assets guy. I just want the farmland piece. Or hey, I'm a venture fund of funds and I can't deal with farmland. I like the ag tech stuff. So yeah. we came to the conclusion that you know we at some level we kind of need to give the market what the market wants, um, and we decided to split the strategies into two separate funds, and that's what we did as of our most recent fundraising last year, of a dedicated farmland fund and a dedicated venture fund. So we still operate the evergreen vehicle. It is net, but we're not making new investments in it. It has, we have put a, an end of life on it. So it's no longer evergreen. It's going to go for at least another 10 years uh, managing um, that portfolio. But the new investments that we're making are out of dedicated funds per so, strategy. So at the end of the 10 years, you would either sell that land, sell those investments, or maybe transfer the land into the new land one and the investments into the new investment ones or or to, to be determined at the end of 10 years, so to speak? Yeah, to, to be determined. And there's a variety of ways, you know, if, if, if at the at the end of that term, um, you know, you have some investors who want to continue holding the land and others who want to exit, you know, you can you can do a variety of things to help finance the um, the guys who want out to get out and and allow the guys who want to roll to continue rolling and and um, and similar on uh, for for the venture assets. So there's plenty of flexibility to be determined in 10 years. Okay. Well, Eric, I think right now we'll go ahead and take a quick break for a sponsor message and then we'll come back and we'll talk about maybe where you've invested on the farmland side. I think uh, maybe we'll have another conversation about the ag tech, but right now I think I'm uh, the, I think the focus of this podcast is probably more on the farmland side. So let's go ahead and take a quick break. Sure. How many years away is the long run for a farmer? Five years? Ten years? Top producers like Hans Reinchi, a blue diamond farming company in Jessup, Iowa, know Robo Agri Finance shares his enduring vision for the future. Whether it's building our grain site or if it's purchasing the next field, we're able to turn to Robo as a trusted partner to help us get financing to make those generational decisions. With unmatched financial capacity, local relationship managers, and a global network of sector experts to offer market guidance, Robo Agri Finance provides enterprising farmers with a personalized approach to lending and financial services. Growing a better world together, Robo Agri Finance. Welcome back, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer, and I'm Paul Neefer, your host, and we're going to rejoin our conversation with Eric O'Brien from Fallland Capital. Um, Eric, on your farmland investment side, I know you've invested in various parts of the country. I, I'm just hoping you can sort of give an idea to you, to our listeners out there where you've sort of found some good pockets of investment on the farmland side. Sure. 
So when we first started the firm, one of the things that we did uh, from the beginning was take a really deep look at a variety of factors that affect productivity on farms and um, built our own internal database, um, kind of measured out at a, at a imagine taking um, a, a piece of graph paper and, and slapping it over the top of, of the map of the U.S. and dividing up the, the U.S. into uh, a grid, you know, a mile, mile by mile, one, you know, one mile square pixels. And, and then within that, looking at for, for each of those pixels, um, what is uh, corn yield? What is the weather history on a daily basis for the last 20 years? This is all publicly available data. What is the average soil type within that pixel? And then uh, importantly, uh, what is the theoretical uh, corn yield. So, we, so we used a, a corn yield simulation model, and and then processed all of the soil and and weather data through that to to output a uh, a theoretical yield. And and then we built a map of the the difference between what actual you know USDA um, you know survey type uh, corn yields were relative to what theoretically should the corn yields be, and we were looking for places that had. Um, a theoretical yield significantly higher than actual yield, right? So, okay. what yep. what is the yield gap? What what is causing it? You know, corn should be 250 bushel in this particular pixel, but it's only 110. What what is going on there? And so we 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 took a look and identified a few regions that kind of stood out from that. So, you know, one, one of those regions was, you know, your, your, your former home region in, in the Tri-Cities area. You've got like Benton County, Washington that had this like stratospheric tea yield um, and, uh, and then even had a higher theoretical yield than that. And, and, and it's like, what's going on there? And you just look at the the long uh, the long days at that latitude um, yeah. the 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 high temperatures combined with cool nights and then the uh, water availability from an irrigation perspective and like okay th there is there is very high yield potential here um, and we can probably take it even higher and you've got huge crop diversity like this is an interesting area and when you look at it in terms of what's it cost to buy an acre of land there normalized for productivity and it was a bargain area relative to core of the corn belt you know in terms of um you know what, what am i paying per bushel of of yield um in in land purchase so so we landed in the pacific northwest pretty early on um so in the tri-cities area and then we've kind of um grown a little bit further out from there to include uh, some parts of northeastern oregon and then into idaho um, and even a bit into montana then we another area that was really interesting to us was in uh, northern Wisconsin, where we identified, you know, you've got um, relatively low yield. So at the time that we entered um, Barron County, Wisconsin, which is kind of a, an upper central county in uh, a sort of parallel latitude to Minneapolis and then and then a couple hours to the east, um, 110, 100, 108 bushel corn tea yield when we when we first started looking there and and the yield models showed that you could get you you could theoretically get you know high 200s um and and so you know as we investigated that area what we what we found is you, you had um, a region that historically had been small dairy mm -hmm. um, and then over maybe the last 10 to 15 years had begun to move in the direction of more commercial grain farming 
So the practices were not quite as sophisticated as what you would see in Iowa, Illinois, Indiana. Um, and the biggest limitation up there is uh, growing degree days. You know, they've got a, a pretty cold and wet spring. It makes it hard to get out in the fields because they're, they're, they're muddy longer. Um, and, you know, when you plant, um, you know, it, it, it takes because the ground is so cold and the growing degree days are you know, relatively short at the beginning um, of the season, it takes forever to germinate. So you're not getting to a full canopy um, of crop when when you are at the peak of your kind of summer uh, sunlight uh, availability. And, and so there we determined that we could do some interesting things, um, both with uh, drainage tile. So, you know, right up the middle kind of uh, capital improvement that you see all over the I states just hadn't been invested in in Wisconsin. And then couple that with um, some interesting things we were doing with biodegradable mulch film that we'd sourced out of Northern Europe, hadn't been used in the US before. Um, so it's like layer, putting a layer of, of saran wrap over your crop as you're planting the corn. And then the corn grows up through that that layer, but but it serves almost like a greenhouse and raises temperatures like 30 degrees. And so we found like by using that, we could get to well north of 200 bushel corn in an area that T yields 108. And and so so that 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 became a really interesting area for us. And then finally down in the south, we're in Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi. And in early days, what we identified was. Um, the best performing fields had been precision leveled um, to manage water flows. You know, primarily, how do you get water off these fields because of of you know weather and flooding and and uh, and you know big rainfall events, um, and a lot of people just simply hadn't invested in that. So that was kind of an easy um, thesis to just come in and and find farms that people hadn't put the money into yet to to do the precision leveling and do that. And we did that, but then what we've what we've evolved to down there is looking at the opportunity for double cropping because if you look at the the winter rainfall pattern in particular, you see there's just a tremendous amount of rain that comes in the wintertime that is effectively wasted water. Um, and you've got a very long growing season, good temperatures, a lot of things that bear resemblance to Brazil. And Brazil, as, as everyone knows, is, is, a, is a double cropping you know, yeah. system. It evolved over 35 years to the point where you know, when it began, the, the second crop was, was mostly a crop failure. And now it is just as productive, if not more productive than, than, than the first crop during the season. And, and we believe that that same dynamic is possible in, in certain parts of the South where you've got the right soil type that, that is kind of like the Goldilocks soil between being um, not too heavy clay, which is your typical soybean farms down there and not too light like your typical cotton farms down there. There is a blend that works really well. And we've been we've been working over the last five or, or six years now on on developing double cropping with a winter crop of either uh, wheat or canola and following that with uh, either soybeans or, or corn. So so it's kind of a long description of where we're doing and why we're doing it. Okay. Okay. Well, and certainly there's other parts of the country that does do a fair amount of double cropping, but you're right. That South really historically probably hasn't been that region that's done a lot of that. No, we, we, we see very little of it. You, you see a little bit of wheat bean farming down there. Um, and that, that sort of, that was kind of the proof of concept to see in the area. Okay. It's possible. Um, and, and now, um, we're, we're investing a lot of time in it and, uh, and actually we've partnered up with Corteva because you know their breeders are obviously looking for ways to expand market opportunity for them and uh, working with them to to breed specifically for a double cropping cropping regime we think can unlock a lot of value okay now so that'd be a winter canola 
that you would take off what in May, late May, early June, and then plant either beans or corn right after? That's right. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, you know, we uh, out in our neck of the woods, out where I grew up, uh, we actually have canola. Most of it's spring canola, but uh, uh, we, we're, we're, you know, of course, the Columbia Basin's got a fair amount of double cropping where maybe it's green peas followed by sweet corn or some other crops. So uh, yep. even though we're farther north in latitude, we're still able, because of, like you say, those long, long hot days in the summer and so on, we can grow quite a few crops. Yep, absolutely. Of course, now I'm in uh, central Colorado where you're lucky to get uh, a wheat crop that does 30 bushels to the bush uh, to the <laughs> acre. So uh, we, we won't talk about that. <laughs> You've got the beauty there, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at uh, Pike's Peak right now. So yes, we do. But uh, well, you know, I could you know, just for the listeners out there, because typically I try to keep this to no more than about 45 minutes. Or we're getting close to to that time period. There's uh, three or four questions I always try to ask. So let's go ahead and jump into those and then I'll let you get back to uh, uh, to whatever else you're doing. Actually, I think tomorrow the markets are closed for Good Friday. So uh, it might even be sort of a long weekend for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wish it were for me, but uh, <laughs> it's an opportunity to catch up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, the first question I always like to ask is, uh, who was your mentor in, in this business? Ooh, my mentor in this business. Um, you know, it's it, uh, maybe funny to say, but, but um, my business partner, Clay, I think we have served as mentors for each other. So he is... Um, really uh about as as uh technically deep and and um experientially deep in um you know commodity row crop ag as, as anyone on the planet and uh, i can't think of someone better to to work with to educate me on um you know the nuances of, of agriculture and i think you know um the 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 flip side of that is that you know I, I have been his mentor uh, as it relates to you know um, helping him become a uh, you know highly capable uh, financial investor. Um, yeah. So so we've had a really unique partnership in that regard. Well, good good. And then uh, like I say, you're working a lot of hours, but do you have any hobbies besides uh, Agland and, and AgTech investing? Yeah, um, so so Clay and I, as I mentioned, share a passion for skiing, and that that actually is um, the 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 reason that we're called Fall Line Capital. Fall Line being a, a term used in skiing for the the fastest path down down a hill. Um, so the winter time uh, for us, you, we we always try to uh, carve out time to get out on the snow and and ski and. That that's probably that's my winter passion, and then uh, during the rest of the year, I, I love getting out and and uh, riding my bike. So uh, mountain biking, gravel cycling, road biking, all all that kind of thing, I, I uh, quite enjoy. Well, then I got to ask you, where, where's your favorite spots to ski? So I grew up uh, and continue to ski in Lake Tahoe, California. So the Sierras, um, but Clay and I have a have a spot that has become a tradition for us up in the Canadian Rockies um, called Mica, uh, and and it's a heli skiing operation that he and I have been going to now for the last ten years, um, and and that is that that's sort of the sublime highlight of our of our ski year every year <laughs> is to spend a few days up there. Now is that near Revelstoke? Yeah, so it's uh, it's about uh, two three hours north of there. Yeah, yeah, because uh, I've heard of because I think there's a Micah a dam up there. So uh, yeah, exactly, uh, Micah Creek yeah. Dam. 
Yep. 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 So, okay. Well, those are good hobbies. Um, uh, now, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say we are in this really interesting time frame with respect to farmland where if you look across, um, you know, high quality farmland across the country, the, uh, trading at at cap rates that are in the, you know, two to three percent range. Right. So you're looking at cash yields on farms of two to three percent in a world where interest rates are now what at seven percent. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. hi history would suggest that you know cap rates and interest rates move in concert and so you would have expected at this point that we would have seen significant decreases in value of farmland because interest rates have gone up so much it's what you know everyone is talking about with respect to residential real estate and commercial real estate but but we have seen just the opposite we've seen cap rates in farmland compress over the last two years um, at the same time that we've seen interest rates expanding and and that's the thing that keeps me up at night Paul, it, it, it is, um, are, are we going to be able to continue to defy gravity because of the strength in commodity prices, the deglobalization of uh, the food supply chain because of war in Ukraine and, and in general kind of international tensions rising? Um, and, and will that price premium of commodities continue to drive high farmland values? Or is the other shoe going to drop at some point? And finally, this this real estate asset falls prey to high interest rates in the same way that commercial and residential do. And we don't have the answer to that uh, right now. And so that that is the thing that we are keeping a very close eye on. And um, your guess is as good as mine as to what happens next. Yeah, you know, I guess my my thoughts on that is that farmers have been really big buyers of farmland over the last three or four years. You know, they've had good pricing. They've had a lot of payments from Uncle Sam, MFP, CFAP, ERP, PARP, et cetera, et cetera. And I think once that capital is used up, because most a lot of farmers I see buying land now are paying cash, you know, they're not borrowing so you're right that that cap or the capitalization factor has been compressed but i think i think that's starting to come to an end now is it six months from now is it six days from now or is it six years from now i don't know so you're right at some point unless interest rates go back down which maybe they might um it's like i say your guess is as good as my guess yeah yeah, well, you know, our, our, here's our hope. Our hope is, um, first of all, we we continue to be very highly convicted that this is an asset that will continue to appreciate in value over the long term. So if you're patient and and you don't have a defined moment where you must sell uh, a piece of farmland, you're you're going to be fine. Um, and and what I what I hope happens here is that we have either a soft landing into kind of a flat period of pricing. Um, or we just continue to make progress because we hopefully get to a point where interest rates, you know, we, we're maybe one or two hikes away from hopefully being done with the with the raises. Um, things level off, begin to come down, and we maintain commodity price strength through that period of time, so that as interest rates begin to decline and farmers can breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief and and think about maybe refinancing some land and 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 um, you know getting a little bit more access to credit that that then helps continue to support prices and, and we continue chugging along in a positive way. But uh, that, that's, that's my wishful thinking and I think it's plausible, uh, but, but only time will tell.
Yeah, no, that you, you got that right. Uh, we'll just have to be patient and see what happens. But uh, well, Eric, this has been a great discussion. Uh, I think uh, a lot of farmers out there know that there is, you know, funds out there. There's certainly been not an explosion in funds, but there's been a lot more of that institutional money that has come into that market. It's actually helped a lot of farmers that don't have as much capital be able to farm more ground as long as they do a good job for somebody like you or whoever else it is it's actually been in some degrees or a lot of degrees a win-win situation for both you and the farmer yeah that, that's a great point paul and i think it's something that that is worth highlighting that you know we we have only worked with local farmers um in in uh in farming our farms so we are we're, we're a private real estate investment trust. So we own the land, but we do not operate it. So we rent to local farmers and uh, we've developed tremendous relationships with those farmers over the years. And, and in fact, if you look at the sales of any of our farms, we, we've sold a number of farms over the last 18, uh, 24 months now. Um, the vast majority of those sales have been to our farmers. Um, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, it, it's been a, it's been a terrific um, kind of win-win relationship. We, we have a number of farmers who, um, you know, we're working uh, for other farmers, and it and if it weren't for the way that we structured leases in in sort of a participatory way, they can basically build a farming business without having access to significant amounts of capital, and have grown significant acreage underneath us, um, you know, working with us and and uh, and growing and 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 uh, you know eventually hopefully buying some land from us. So um, yeah, it, it, it's a really um, it's a it's been a, a really successful model. Okay, well great, and I think. Uh... One of my next podcasts, I'm going to have to reach out to Clay and do a podcast with him, and we'll dig a little deeper into those ag tech investments. For sure. He'd be happy to do it. Now, the problem sometimes when I talk with Clay is sometimes he uses words I don't even understand. So, uh, you yeah, know, we'll, you, but, you need a, uh, that's right. You need a, 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 a thesaurus uh, <laughs> to, to, uh, to go along with it. Maybe, maybe we can uh, leverage chat GPT for that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that day's coming. It's not that far off. So, uh, Again, Eric, this has been great. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? No, Paul, really appreciate you uh, having me on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Okay. Again, this is the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. And I'm Paul Nee for your host, signing off. <laughs>